if anything, we live in a world where there's just too much data, mm -hmm. right? And one of the biggest challenges is what is useful data? Right. And what are useful approaches to data? And, and what is not? You know, we have more data than we could possibly utilize. So strategies mm -hmm. of, of mining data and using data become really key for any organization. You Can Measure Anything, the podcast, shares conversations to help you clarify unclear concepts so that you can develop better measures that lead to better decisions. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You Can Measure Anything, the podcast. I'm Nicole Aliotto, CEO of Alabrava Consulting, and I'm joined today by Mark Wharton, the program coordinator of PhD programs for the Florida Atlantic University College of Business, and he's also a PhD candidate in higher education leadership. Now, as the administrator of the doctoral programs, Mark is responsible for overseeing the academic services for both the college's traditional and executive PhD students. He shares responsibility for recruitment, enrollment management, advising, and retention of the program's cohorts. So welcome, Mark. Thank Woo! you. Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate it. Wonderful to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. And I have a feeling after that intro, our listeners might be thinking, how does a program coordinator that deals with PhD students know anything about style? <laughs> so maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your professional journey. And I think that'll shed some light as to why style and measurement are both in your wheelhouse. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a very interesting path. Um, so I started in, in university as a marketing management major and really in a consumer goods product universe. Um, in theory, going to work for Colgate Palmolive or Procter Gamble or any of those consumer goods companies. However, in the interview process as a senior, it struck me that some of the department stores were sending representatives onto campus to interview. So I interviewed with Macy's and Bloomingdale's and Heck Company out of uh, DC and, and several others and found that there was a marketing career within fashion that I was not aware of. And so I started with Bloomingdale's right out of college and spent a total of 10 years with the parent company, Federated Department Stores at that time to own Bloomingdale's and department stores across the country. So I spent 10 years in total with them, um, learning to be a buyer of men's fashion, spent some time in the, I threw out five years in the women's fashion arena as a business analyst, but most of my time was spent in men's. And then from the department store, I opened up my own boutique in Atlanta, a very sort of New York Soho, high fashion <laughs> men's boutique. And that ushered me into the world of designer fashion because we carried some designer brands. And then I switched sides of the table. I went from being the buyer for a store to being the seller for these designer brands. And so I went on to work with Tommy Hilfiger, with Ralph Lauren, um, with Jeffrey Bean, Reebok. 
several men's brands and spent years in both the wholesale and the retail side of fashion. So that's where the the style um, exposure comes from. I spent a lot of time in what one might refer to as the style industry prior to entering into higher ed. You had some some interesting forays into pop culture style, from what I recall from our discussion. Can you share that with our, our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I did spend time both at Tommy and at Ralph Lauren during the period of time that they were two of the hottest brands in pop culture. It was when hip hop artists and rock artists started to sort of co-brand and and mm-hmm. um, solicit clothing from designers and announce the designers that they were wearing. So I worked along with Tommy Hilfiger's younger brother, his name is Andy, and he was responsible for product placement of all the product from Tommy Hilfiger with music artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just became friendly with Andy and in that time got a chance to meet a lot of the music artists that were coming to Tommy for clothing. Um, And I was also married at the time to someone who uh, was a fashion stylist. So my ex-wife worked directly with Russell Simmons and Def Jam, putting fashion on the female music Mm -hmm. artists that worked with Def Jam recordings. And also as a freelance stylist, doing fashion shoots for artists throughout music and acting industry. So uh, the two of us really spent a lot of time in that intersection of fashion and music. I think that's important to bring up because they are so intertwined now. And it's hard to think of a time when it wasn't that way. But really, you were at that transition point where things were coming together and artists were establishing a style beyond their musical genre. It was really their whole, you know, as we say, their brand, which was another podcast episode, um, yes. you know, their whole brand. And that style really fed into it with some of these, um, you know, more popular brand names, if you will. Yeah, yeah. actually, I do think it's it was sort of a uh, an era where fashion, music, and celebrity Mm-hmm. all came together yeah. and it became important who one was wearing, right? So we always had that red carpet at the Oscars and the intrusive host and hostesses asking, who are you wearing? And that was kind of always a thing dating back to the uh, 40s and 50s with those actors and actresses presenting brands for these designers that were making couture outfits for those uh, those events. But it really sort of ended there, right? There really wasn't an association with other celebrities and fashion. And I do think when hip hop started to be very upfront with what clothing brands they were wearing and what brands were cool and lacing their lyrics with the names of fashion brands. <laughs> my Adidas, of course. <laughs> yes, exactly. My Adidas is a great example. It really started to then become a phenomenon in the music industry and not just hip hop, because even rock artists became more concerned about what they were wearing and more more name conscious. But then I think the other event is that whole rise in celebrity culture that in some way was fueled by social media. And it then became important 
no matter what kind of celebrity, whether you came from the world of acting, whether you were an athlete, TV star, musician, people became invested in what one was wearing from their sneakers up through to, to their you know upper layers. Um, and so that was sort of that same era that I was in the industry and product placement, putting your product on celebrities became a very proactive part of the industry. So meaning originally, other than those red carpet moments, celebrities approached designers to ask, could they wear an outfit to an event or something of that sort? But there wasn't really a team of people actively recruiting celebrities to wear their clothing until that sort of 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. 1980s and 90s era when it became this intersection. So yeah, it, it was um, a, a large transition in terms of, to your point, celebrities creating personal brands and then wanting to co-brand their personal brand with other brands, whether that be, you know, electronics, whether that be clothing, whether that be sneakers. Um, it was sort of that intersection that I came into the fashion industry in. I'm glad you brought up all these topics. We're going to intertwine some of these areas as we discuss uh, style and how we might go about measuring it. But I want to start almost at square one is how, how does one establish a style? And, you know, and, and we're talking a lot about style and brands and you know, they're not, they're not quite interchangeable. So anyway, I'm mm -hmm. going to go more pinpoint into the idea of what is it to establish one style? You know, I don't think I have a style. Maybe I do. If somebody looks in my closet, they probably get really confused because it's all <laughs> over the place. So, you know, I don't know, you know, if, you know, what is it to have a style or establish a style. And just to kind of piggyback on the celebrity piece, I, I think about you know, Taylor Swift as a brand now, you know, she's mega super famous. I mean, there's, I can't even think of a superlative there. When you think about her beginning of her career, when she was more of that Nashville country style, mm -hmm. and I think she even has a song called style. And now she has more of a, a pop, a little glamorous, a little old school vibe coming in there and not so much of that country style, yet it still fits into the Taylor Swift brand. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how does one establish a style? So I'll, I'll be honest, Nicole, I think that the vast majority of people do not have a personal style and nor is that Guilty. <laughs> necessary. Yes. Nor is that necessary for most people. When I think about my journey, I went to a school that produced a ton of Wall Street finance types. So my college friends tended to go into that finance world. And as they've progressed upwardly career-wise, they spend more money on their suits and their ties and their dress shirts and that type of thing but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily better styled mm. because in their industry, you're not getting credit for that particular necktie that you're wearing. You're not getting credit for the shoe brand that you're wearing in most people's everyday walk of life. Mm -hmm. But in most people's social gathering, same thing, like the, the uh, suburban couple that attends a house party typically not really getting credit for what you're wearing or what you're not wearing, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't think 
having a personal style is a uh, a typical phenomenon, right? Now, I think in terms of wanting to establish a personal style, that's that's not hard, right? It's not natural for most people or necessary, but it's also not difficult because it's really about looking out at the world at what you like, right? So it's that old, uh, I may not know art, but I know what I like, right? Mm -hmm. So the same thing about fashion. I may not know fashion, but I know what I like. And so it's a matter of when you look out at uh, television or social media or magazines um, or movies, someone walks into a room. So if I do it for you, Nicole, a woman walks into a room and you love the outfit she has on, that's a signal to you that you see yourself with that style or you aspire to that style. And so uh, to the extent that you could you know, screen capture the outfit, you could go in and uh, put something similar together. But I think about the way that we created collections as mm -hmm. the same way that I would create a personal style if I was um, going to. And that would be with a storyboard. Mm. So I would literally be taking screenshots on my mobile phone. I would be ripping magazine pictures out and I would put together uh, a storyboard of looks that just looked good to me. Mm -hmm. And within that begin to then determine one of the things, if if someone did this, they would see a color story mm -hmm. because we are likely to be pulling from a palette that we that resonates with us. Uh, so I know I'm an earth tone person. So I know that my storyboard would have black and browns and tans and maybe some deep jewel tones of mm -hmm. uh, red or orange or something of that sort. But I know it wouldn't have primary colors. I know it wouldn't have bright yellow um, so you're wearing we would, red right now. <laughs> so I am wearing a, a, a red. People can't see it, but I. Yes, I gotcha. yes. So I, I will call that a jewel tone red. <laughs> okay. red. Um, but yes, yeah, so like a deeper red would mm -hmm. would resonate with me, whereas a brighter red, a, a lighter red would not. Let's say. Mm -hmm. But if someone was to uh, focus on outfits that they see on others that they like, that's how you begin to put together a personal style. A, a, a more traditional way is, you know, something like a Vogue magazine or a GQ magazine, and you're looking at um, highly stylized, very expensive outfits, and then looking for ways to translate that to more affordable mm -hmm. um, looks. My main message would be, I don't think that most people have a need for a real personal style. I think most people gravitate to traditional looks from the culture that they come from, right? So that can be even regional, right? The, the Northeast versus the Southeast versus mm -hmm. Texas versus LA. Um, I think we just have the inputs of those around us mm -hmm. and we just wear what we're used to seeing on the people around us, that being our family and friends and neighbors. And people with my background that entered fashion, much more likely to create a personal sense of style because it matters in, in, mm -hmm. in the world, the professional context that they're in. I think also what's available. And I think of you know, what's available now with the internet and being able to get access to different style compared to when 
all of those options were not so easily available, you really were limited by whatever stores were in your neighborhood. And that was what your style became because you really didn't have any other choices. Now we have way too many choices. (laughs) Even more specifically to the styles that were available in your size. Yeah, yeah. Because that's also been something that has not been universal, right? There's been Mm -hmm. this mentality that says someone, um, if I use women's fashion, someone from a size two to a size eight is going to lend themselves or their body is going to lend themselves to these looks. And then somebody Mm -hmm. from a size 12 to an 18, their body's only going to lend themselves to these looks. And so uh, size and price very much dictated style, right? Because the, the other old school mentality was someone spending this amount of money only has taste at this level. And somebody spending this amount of money has better taste so even price was a a dictator of yeah. what style was available. Yeah, uh, we can be thankful for some of the positive uh, results of the internet allowing that to change quite a bit over the past few decades. I want to turn our attention to the the term in style versus out of style, as we're thinking about these you know lookbooks or storyboards that mm-hmm. we might be considering. You know, I think about what's in style, what's out of style. And right away, I start to think if it's in or it's out, there's something measurable. There's a measurable quality there. So are there universals that are present to determine whether something might be in style versus out? You know, I don't think of anything being universal in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, like so many aspects of our lives, social media, specifically the internet in general, has allowed for this stratification where we're all in our unique sort of geosocial political bubbles. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true on the style level as well, right? Mm -hmm. That um, I go on social media, I'm going to be exposed to X amount of style based on my lifestyle. Someone else goes on social media, they'll be looking at something else. So I, I would say, in style is a very relative term today. It originated back in the times when uh, European design houses dictated what was in style, right? So Yves Saint Laurent says skinny pantsuits are in style. So that becomes a statement worldwide because the house of Yves Saint Laurent has said this is the, the deal. Uh, rap dresses um, by Dion von Furstenberg are in because she says they're in, right? Mm-hmm. That's her favorite look. And that has long disappeared. Mm. Couple dynamics there. One is as streetwear started to influence uh, couture and those became uh, simultaneous influences in both directions. So in other words, some kid in a neighborhood in Harlem is wearing jeans with multiple Louis Vuitton LV logos on the legs, right? So that kid is being influenced by couture uh, fashion. Mm -hmm. But then seeing that kid dressed that way by an influencer or an observer gets back to Louis Vuitton. 
And so now they develop an mm-hmm. item in their line that looks just like the the knockoff that the kid had. <laughs> so the, the influencers are going both directions yeah. at this point. So that's one of the big elements that have changed is fashion doesn't dictate down with the same authority that it used to. Mm. But then simultaneous is all these silos, all these different bubbles that we all live in. And so that couture world still has influence on the men and women that actually can afford couture fashion, certainly. And they're looking for direction from those designers. And then the layer right beneath them. So the people that stretch their budgets to buy something from one of those designer houses, they are also still influenced by the direction of the design houses. But it's only, I think, those two stratas of society that the true couture customer and the aspirational, just below that level customer mm-hmm. um, are still being influenced directly by the design houses. But everybody else, I think, is being influenced by their social media. Mm. And so if you are in Texas and you resonate with a sort of red state conservative lifestyle, then what's in style for you is going to be traditional uh, menswear looks, you know, striped polos and khaki chinos. If you, on the other hand, are a uh, Northwestern college student, (laughs) then you may be influenced by buffalo plaid, Woolridge wool shirts because of that Northwestern mountaineer aesthetic. Um, And so I think in style and out of style become very much individualized lifestyle bubbles of what's in style in your, in your lifestyle bubble. Right. Mm. And, and no longer that broad in style, out of style, there will be a trend among suburban moms in terms of fashion (laughs) that a college girl is not even aware of Mm -hmm. um, because that trend is only happening in that social environment, that social circle of Mm. suburban moms. So I think that it's no longer one universal in style, one universal out of style. I really think like all the other sort of social elements of our society everything has become these very tight bubbles hmm. of influence. And, and and I think in style is also subject to that same very tight bubble of influence, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. You know, it, but the idea of in style and out of style really came to my mind because I've always loved leopard print. And if you can- I just realized before that I'm wearing a leopard print shirt. I've got my leopard print glasses on. Yeah. So I, that, that's been my thing, but it really comes down to my grandmother in mid-century days would wear leopard print, like way back in the late forties, early fifties. Yes, and yes, that yes. too, I love that style since that point. But I, over the years I was told, oh, leopard prints out or leopard prints in. And for me, it was just always it's always a given. So I'm, I'm happy to know that, you know, my bubble is intact. Yes, I am still in my leopard print world and I'm okay. <laughs> absolutely. And so here's another thing that when we talk about personal style, so two things, one is um, as we age, um, we all take more ownership of our identity and hopefully become more secure. So 
what I'm wearing and people's reactions to it diminishes every year, right? Because it just becomes, I'm going to be me and I don't care, right? So <laughs> one thing that you can rest uh, assured with is that at any point, we can all establish our own style and tune out the reactions of others. We, we should be dressing for who we see in the mirror anyway, right? It should be a matter of, wow, I like that. And that's that's all that that we should measure our, our taste by. So one, I'll say that, you know, what's in style matters less the more we own our own identity, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say, though, is that personal sense of style is established by those people who are not concerned with negative reactions from other people, mm -hmm. right? So the, the taste leaders have that courage of I'm wearing it, deal with it, attitude. So mm -hmm. I think that's the other thing about in style is that personal sense of style says, I do this for me, and I don't really care about the negative reactions. I think everybody that says I dress for myself is probably being a little bit disingenuous, that there isn't a want of the positive feedback. But I definitely think people with a personal sense of style don't care about the negative feedback. This is really an interesting connection then, given the fact of the influence of social media and the likes and clicks. And we talk about measurement and, and measuring yes. people's reactions to one's style, because we can think about in style, out of style as, as being more personalized, but there is that evaluation of style and you know, even judgment in the more negative side of <laughs> reactions. Mm -hmm. So when we're measuring style, it's, uh, it's just interesting to me that we can measure it with people's likes or comments, mm -hmm. or maybe their shares, maybe they're saved to a Pinterest board or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. But those style leaders, or you said taste leaders, they're not impacted by that so much. So I, I want to explore that a little bit because we can either be reactive and influenced by styles that we see, but the true style makers don't have that. So it's interesting. That's, that's really interesting. There, there is a, there's a duality here um, yeah. because on the one hand, those, those real tastemakers, and I don't mean the design houses, but the individual consumers that mm -hmm. are tastemakers, um, on the one hand, are not likely to see hundreds of thousands of clicks because they tend to be ahead of everybody else. And so uh, mm -hmm. a smaller circle will resonate with a new approach to fashion or a new look, right? So on the one hand, yes, I am quite certain that each one of these tastemakers pays careful attention to clicks and likes and that type of reaction to what they post on, on Instagram or um, on TikTok or something of that sort. I'm sure that they are in tune with how people are reacting, but they'll probably never be the people that have the millions of clicks. That's gonna be that next group. So when we talk about um, style and style leaders at the very sort of front edge, leading edge of style are tastemakers, and they may impact 2% of fashion. 
because they're so far out in front of everybody else and um, only sort of the other avant-garde and tastemakers are in tune with and, and, and reacting to what they're posting. Then right behind them are the uh, first followers, the, the mm. quick to respond, quick to react. They're going to have much larger followings mm. um, because they're going to be reacting to fashion at the point that more people have embraced or understood it, right? So an example in menswear, if I go back about 10 years, give or take, was skinny leg jeans and skinny leg pants. And mm -hmm. it was coming off an era where men were embracing wider leg pants because they're just more comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And I can remember seeing the first images of men in these pencil thin pants and thinking to myself, never, right? Like, <laughs> I just had a visual of, of Kramer on Seinfeld trying to get the skinny pants, the skinny jeans. Yes, on. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and so that first edge, that, that those looks probably did not do well at retail, did not sell very much. Um, and there wasn't a large reaction. But right behind that leading edge, the fashion followers embraced that skinny leg. And it became a huge trend for several years of men wearing skinny leg jeans and skinny leg chinos and that type of thing. So when it comes to measurement, I think that there are several resources in, in terms of measurement. So on a, on a social level, it would be the social media responses, right? So who are the people with the largest following in terms of influencers on Instagram and TikTok? Which brands have the most uh, viewings and clicks on Instagram and, um, and other social media? So there is the, uh, definitely there are the social media measurements that didn't used to exist mm -hmm. that really allows brands to know with great certainty what, what, what people are responding to. But then they're just the commercial barometers, right? The the retail dollars. So mm -hmm. I can also, if I'm polo, I can look collection by collection, item by item, color by color, fabric by fabric, pattern by pattern. And I can just look at rate of sale and sell through percent and profitability by, by style and get a read on measuring style that way. So there is the, um, there are, two different empirical measurements, mm -hmm. one being commercial dollars. How did it perform at retail? What stores responded to at wholesale? And then there are the less commercial empirical results in terms of clicks and, mm -hmm. and likes and that type of thing. So I think the, the fashion world has more direct ability to measure style impact than it's ever had. Yeah, and that's critical because you can have all of the likes and shares and saves in the world, but if they're not following with the dollars, then you know that there's a disconnect that people are engaging with your style or your brand, but not following through. And it could be, you know, a combination of factors, accessibility, again, price points, again, sure. you know, still, you know, what size is, you know, is it, sure. is it adaptable? You know, we've got a lot more, you know, back in the day, having styles that were gender neutral, you know, those were uh, more rare and mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. tends to be more favored now mm -hmm. as, you know, being able mm -hmm. to 
choose whatever you want. You know, when I go to the store now, I, I tend to shop in the men's department for shorts because they have better pockets. You know, <laughs> they still don't have enough crossover. You know, it's not that I don't like those uh, women's styles, but they're not functional for yes. what I want yes. to use. So yes. you know, there is that disconnect and the more data you have and more measurements, it'll allow you to inform that. So let's think about our, our kind of personal styles and, and measuring that, you know, I, as you're talking about the tastemakers and first to respond again, I'm a child of the seventies, the eighties, you know, into adulting into the nineties. <laughs> and, um, but I think about if, if early eighties, Madonna yep. had a social media page, she probably would be, you know, one of the top, you know, influencers. However, her style was based on others in her neighborhood and area of New York City. So she wasn't necessarily the genesis or the mm -hmm. tastemaker, but perhaps the first to respond that really allowed mm -hmm. that style mm -hmm. to have the wider influence. Would that be? Yep. Would I would that say be that's it, perfect. Right? Yeah, it's a perfect, uh, perfectly accurate description. So, so for example, when we think of one of the things that she was famous for, it was wearing uh, a corset top mm -hmm. as an external top, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like a corset bra as an external top instead of an undergarment. She clearly did not come up with that idea or that look, mm -hmm. right? So to your point, it was the, the neighborhood that she was hanging out in in New York City and the looks of the people um, that were her lifestyle. And then she just sort of blew that up. So yeah, I do think she's a perfect example of not necessarily being the original creative, but making something popular. So she would be one of the original influencers, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. uh, a style influencer, I would say. Right, right. So thinking of style and influence and measurements, and if we think about a measurement in terms of evaluation, which we're, we're looking at with the style impact, I want to flip it around and, and look at it from a predictive standpoint, because I also mm -hmm. love predictive mm -hmm. analytics. Mm -hmm. What might we use to predict the styles of tomorrow? And do you have any thoughts of what they might be based on data that you've noticed out in the style world? So I'm not so sure I've, I'm current enough with data to offer my own predictions. Um, but I would say that, uh, again, because of social media, uh, brands certainly have a much more real-time, accurate gauge of what's to be able to be predictive. So uh, how that would, would work in um, a modern brand would be a lot through social media. So if I've got a handful of influencers on social media that represent my brand and I provide one of them with certain looks in footwear and another with other looks, we can also then see how mm. social media reacts to those two different styles. Mm. Um, most fashion evolves. So the, the, the blouse that you're wearing that fabric has been cut in that uh, silhouette of that particular blouse. So if that blouse was on a, a social media influencer, I would have the opportunity to measure several things. One would be just the reaction to the pattern itself, but I could take that fabric 
and I could, you know, make a dozen different blouses mm. from that same fabric, right? Mm -hmm. I can uh, change the sleeves. I can change the neckline, I, whether it's got buttons, whether it doesn't have buttons. So I can also track reaction to pattern and silhouette and construction and then use that to predict where things are going to go. Mm. So today, fashion brands... So one of the things I do pay attention to is my Instagram is filled with fashion brands, right? So I still constantly look at what they are doing on social media. And you'll see that something that's getting clicks today will be reinvested into in a bigger way tomorrow. And if that gets more clicks, then that'll get expanded on as well. So I think because we've got all brands, style brands, now have a direct pathway to consumers, which they didn't used to, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be that the brand sold its product to the buyers of a department store, right? Mm -hmm. who then turned around and put it out in place for consumers. Mm -hmm. And so I remember back in my day, I'm asking the stores, you know, what are you hearing? What are your customers telling you? Uh, what do your salespeople tell you? When I would go into the mall, I would walk into the polo shop and talk to that salesperson. So what are you hearing from customers, right? We don't, you can certainly still do that, but you can find out directly through your own polo um, Instagram page. You can put polling questions. You, you, you have, um, you see this on Instagram all the time where there's five photos and that'll ask you, which do you like best? Yeah, yeah. So they can do that by ranking fashion that way. Yeah. Um, so the fact that social media has provided a direct pathway from the brand to the influencer, to the consumer and back, mm -hmm. I think predicting is easier than it's ever been. You yeah. know, if I think about in the 1960s and those designers, they had in, intuitively an interest in something yeah, and then put that out and it worked or it didn't work. Um, someone I noticed that still does this is the House of Dior still is inspired by locations and cultures. And so they'll do an entire collection based on uh, cultural fabrics and construction and weaving techniques out of India. Mm. And then do another one that's influenced by uh, Frida Kahlo in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so they're very much being influenced as artisans by what they see in the world and then claiming that's the inspiration for this collection and launching it. Whereas other brands are much more influenced from the street up. Mm -hmm. So they're paying attention to social media influencers and what's trending and then incorporating that in their collection. So mm -hmm. there's so much more opportunity today to yeah. know where your customer's headed. I think an, another data source that sometimes we forget about, and not just for style, but for other constructs, particularly when the data are available, I have to do with your know, reviews and the qualitative comments that people leave. You know, we'll have the quantitative with the social media. Maybe we've got some comments that we can mine, or we've got the retail data. But when we think about all of the reviews that people are leaving, 
everywhere. You know, know, we've got many sources, whether you're using, you know, the big online um, shopping places or whether you're looking at the specific stores, there is a section for reviews. Mining those comments and doing some content analysis will also provide insights as to what's not working with a particular style or product. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we use that often enough because it's more difficult, but it could be richer in terms of providing a direction. Yes, yes. So when I think about that, I I do qualitative research at the university. So for me, I'm invested in narratives and being Mm -hmm. able to understand people's journeys. Um, That's the kind of uh, research I do. So for me, that narrative element is key. Mm -hmm. And you're right, we have tremendous access to it. So even uh, uh, if if Polo does a a, um, Instagram post of five looks, if you go into the comment section of that post, um, you're going to get all kinds of rich <laughs> data in terms of the commentary that's posted from um, that's just passive because, you know, they posted these pictures and then people yeah. just on their own posted comments. But then you can go a step further and you can ask questions yeah. on that post and and direct the the consumer to answer very specific questions. Uh, there was a, a campaign I saw uh, a few weeks ago that was all about the shades of a color. Mm. And so it was looking at uh, rose red and it was these very, very tiny differences in shades. And there are about eight looks mm. and it asked you to rank the, the colors. So yeah, you can be really uh, aggressive on the qualitative side with the technology today. And, and yeah. it's, I think, very, very helpful. Yes. And and you could follow up so quickly. You know, if you find out that something isn't working or something was a feature that was of interest, taking the comments and using that to direct the next phase of the campaign. You know, I used to work for Tiffany and I, when I was in college. And so I still follow all of the Tiffany social media and I've seen how it's tried to um, adapt its uh, brand over the years. And the comments are very rich. You've got mm-hmm. different populations of old school luxury brand fans and new school luxury yep. brand fans coming yep. together and questioning you. Are we are we generating campaigns that are isolating some of our customer base? And if so, you know, is that okay? Or do we need to differentiate? We can get a lot from looking at those comments and, and adjusting whether or not our, our style so is having true. impact. If anything, and I'm sure that you deal with this, encounter this all the time. If anything, we live in a world where there's just too much data, mm-hmm. right? And one of the biggest challenges is what is useful data, right? <laughs> and what are useful approaches to data, and and what is not? You know, we have more data than we could possibly utilize. So, strategies mm-hmm. of of mining data and using data become really key for any organization because um, we are overwhelmed with our ability. Um, at a granular level, all the way up um, to access data today, and so having a you know a, a, an effective data strategy becomes a key element of success. I think that's a great kind of end note for our conversation when we come to constructs like style or other 
hard to measure concepts, Mm -hmm. having an approach and, and part of our podcast is focusing on how do we measure that? What does it mean? for the context that we are applying it to mm-hmm. and really developing that data strategy. That's, that's the core of it. We can't just go in and, you know, hope for the best, you know, we yes. want to go in with the plan. Otherwise yes. you do get overwhelmed because there are so many data points available. So that strategy is key. The definitions are key and then lining up your measures so that they are being collected in a way we can use them to drive yep. decisions moving forward. Yes, yes. And use them accurately, um, interpret them accurately. I think that that end of any organization, the, the, the team of people who are responsible for data analytics, mm-hmm. quite possibly the most valuable team in any organization today, right? Because we've got this treasure trove of data or data points Mm-hmm. But without a cohesive strategy um, to utilize it in an effective way, it can it could be the world's biggest time waster <laughs> to crank through a bunch of data that doesn't provide you decision making um, information or the opposite. It can be the most efficient, effective use of decision making with great data analytics. So I, I do think it's critical and I do think even something as nebulous as style can be measured and reaction to style can be measured more easily today um, than ever, right? And so there's a real opportunity in this style space to utilize analytics to, to be more effective. Well, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else our, our, our listeners should think about as we we go and measure our style after listening so to this I, podcast? Yeah, I think the main thing I would say is to not overthink and not over be, not be overly concerned. That the, the thing about today where we can all create our own little bubbles of influence is it allows each of us to define ourselves however we want and also find a group that will we can relate to in a, in a similar self-defined way. And therefore just be you let your style be you and um and it's okay if it isn't you know statement making <laughs> um that that is really for a very small percentage of people and for the rest of us it's about being comfortable and feeling good about what we have on on a, on a given day and i wouldn't um i wouldn't be overly concerned I think that is great advice. I truly appreciate your time today. It's been a fun journey uh, talking and going down memory lane of all of these style icons and thinking about where it could go in the future and and how we might measure it. So thank you, Mark Wharton, for joining us today. Thank, Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate you having me. It was fun. Join us next week for a constructive chat about another cryptic concept because you can measure anything.